TED Audio Collective. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. The Business of War. Google employees protest work for the Pentagon. Hundreds of Amazon employees plan to risk their jobs this week by violating company policy. Wayfair employees walk out in protest over sales to migrant detention camps. Capitalism needs to evolve. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm a columnist at the New York Times, the founder of DealBook, and an anchor on CNBC's Squawk Box. And I'm coming to you from home. Where else? One time. Uh, hey, Andrew. Yep. Andrew, this mm-hmm. is, you're not on air. This is a podcast. Okay. So, oh, so, so we can we can just talk. You don't have to go through all the headlines. Hey, Adam, can you just hang on for a second? I, I still have to do that one more headline. Social movements are contagious. Protests within Massachusetts companies are part of a growing trend. Well, Andrew, is it a trend? Good question. Across industries, employees have been making headlines by advocating for their workplaces to change policies and practices. They're pushing for companies to take a stand on a range of causes, some of them even wading deep into politics. These confrontations can make or break individual and organizational reputations. So if you're the one posting or protesting, how do you make sure it's effective? And if you're a leader, how should you respond to employee activism so it makes the organization stronger, not weaker? I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, how to use your voice to drive change above you and how to manage all the voices rising up from below. Thanks to SAP for sponsoring this episode. Employee activism is on the rise, but a company is not a democracy. Sorry, it isn't. Yes, employees are key stakeholders, but leaders also have responsibilities to serve the interests of customers, shareholders, and the community. They need to consider what's best for the entire organization, not just the people inside it. At the same time, a workplace shouldn't be run like a dictatorship. As a leader, you want people to speak up if they see something broken. If you see something that's demonstrably wrong happening inside a company, I mean, really wrong, I think that you have to some degree even a responsibility to speak out. After the school shooting in Parkland, many employees and customers lobbied for Dick's Sporting Goods to stop selling guns altogether. But others pressured them to stay the course. Leaders decided on a middle ground, they would stop selling assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. More than 60 employees quit in protest because they felt the company had gone too far. Sales dropped, and at least one provider ended their contract. But in the past few years, the company has taken an even bigger stand. In 2020, the CEO announced they would pull guns and ammunition from half the stores altogether. 
clearly he was going to take an economic hit for doing that. He was going to take a political hit. There was a backlash uh, among customers that was manifest online and all over. As some leaders engage employee activism, others have tried to avoid it altogether. You look at Coinbase. This is the cryptocurrency exchange company led by Brian Armstrong. He very publicly came out and said, look, our mission is the business. That's the purpose. And anything else that distracts from that is not something we want to focus on. Coinbase released guidelines that employees shouldn't pursue activism outside their core mission or talk politics at work. And that did not go well. The backlash from employees was immediate. 60 of them left in protest. We'll see whether that is a strategy as an economic argument that works. Do his employees stay? Do they go? Does he have a hard time attracting or retaining people? Uh, Does he have a hard time attracting or retaining customers? Do people look at that and say, yeah, I want to get behind that? Do people say, no, uh, I I hate that idea so much that I'm willing to either leave the company or I'm not going to use that exchange. I'll use a rival or competitive exchange. I think those are the issues that everybody's thinking about right now. This is a tricky line to walk. In a recent survey, half of CEOs felt responsibility to take a stand on social and political issues, while the other half thought CEOs have been doing too much of that. Last year, Andrew and I were at a conference when he raised a big question. In organizations today, who's the boss? Are leaders still ultimately in charge? Or is the court of public opinion the real boss? When should organizations grant employees demands? And when should they not? So I think there's a confluence of things that have happened over the last several years that have effectively reorganized what used to be the classic org chart and have empowered, in many ways, employees at what might be described as the bottom rungs to almost be able to rise in many ways and have their voice heard at the top rung. Part of it, frankly, is just technology. It is the rise of Slack and Microsoft Teams and these internal message boards where people feel free and open to express their views and ideas and really be able to even build movements inside organizations in ways that they never could before. On the other side is actually what's happened inside technology companies themselves, really led by Google initially, that they were going to allow employees to express themselves in ways that they never had before. Google really pioneered this idea that they were much more like a university than a top-down company. But it was also a way of trying to tell employees, we trust you, we care about you, and we want to give you voice. And so it started with free food, but it's extended itself to free expression. No, it's interesting that you point your finger at Google because I remember being there in in 2010, and they were so excited that they had given everybody a voice. And and now we fast forward a decade. Now everyone has a voice. What are we going to do? Exactly. And I think there is, at least privately, misgivings about what's happening because it does make, quote unquote, managing an organization, especially at scale, much more complicated because it becomes this almost egalitarian democracy. 
And while democracy can be a great thing when it comes to politics and maybe even to some degree policy, democracy is messy. And whether you end up with the right results in the context of a business, I think is still an open question. The other thing that's been happening at the same time is we are now confronting big social issues in ways that business never did before. And actually businesses unto themselves are taking action. Now, part of the reason they're taking action is because their own employees are speaking out. I think employees feel much freer to say what they want to say. So I, ha- I, have, I have little or nothing to lose by speaking up. In a day and age when most employees think that they are punching their ticket along a journey from one company to another, how are they going to be injured? I think that back when people plan to work their entire life at one company, you've heard people talk about feeling like they're working for a company and being paid hush money and that they were willing to almost accept that hush money because they were dependent on it. That actually reminds me of the psychological contract, which is the unwritten expectations and obligations between employees and employers. And when we study them, we basically see that you know a lot of employers just have an economic contract. I give you a paycheck and you know you give me effort in exchange. Many employers have gone to a more what's called socio-emotional contract. I think about that as, as being more like a community or a family where, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help you feel a sense of belonging. And in return, you're going to be more loyal. And one of the things we've seen in, in the past decade or so is that more and more organizations have set up what are called ideological contracts, where the currency is a cause or a moral principle. I'm going to give you the chance to work on a mission that's bigger than yourself, that creates a sense of purpose in your life. And in return, you're going to bring me unusual levels of passion and dedication. And I wonder if this is a double-edged sword, because the moment that you let people know that your organization stands for an ideology, you open the door for people to bring in their own ideologies. Well, this goes very much to the idea of companies that talk about purpose and social responsibility and mission. But you're 100% right. The second you decide that you stand for something very specific you open yourself up. And as we've discussed with all of these new electronic tools at the disposal of employees, people are sharing their views. You mentioned that democracy is messy. And, you know, I hear hear a lot of, especially Silicon Valley executives complain about entitlement. It's kind of funny when you think about it, because I cannot imagine walking into an organization as a new hire and thinking, I have a clue about what's going to be good for the organization's future, or that it's my place to impose my values on a company. And it does seem that that exists in a way that it didn't before. Where do you think that's coming from? I 100% believe that this sense of entitlement has risen to new levels, no question. But I also think that business has almost embraced this idea structurally, these efforts to try to flatten organizations, this idea that the boss is has an open door policy. Do they really want people to emerge with these voices in the way that they have? Or were they hoping that people would feel like they could say whatever they wanted to say, but it was really never going to reach them? I don't know if this started out with the sort of intention of, you know what, we'll try to make everybody feel good. We'll try to flatten this organization so everybody feels like they have a voice if they want a voice. But you know what, we'll be able to filter that voice. And I think what companies are realizing is it's very hard to filter that voice. 
So how do you listen to the voices of employees without abdicating your responsibility to lead? A big theme in work life this season has been process. We've talked about creating accountability for a good decision process. We've explored the value of having a transparent process for determining pay. This speaks to a broader idea of what's called procedural justice, a fair process. As a leader or manager, it's impossible to make decisions that leave everyone happy. Several decades of evidence reveal that employees are more willing to accept undesirable outcomes when the process is fair. Hopefully a CEO is introspective enough to see people raising their voice about a particular issue and saying, okay, can I, can I consider this constructive criticism? Can I figure out what I should be doing better, what the company needs to be doing better? I think if you blow off all voices, that's also a terrible idea. I think the question is, when do you welcome in these ideas and when don't you? And I don't think that there's necessarily a formula for that. There might not be an exact formula, but a fair process can be broken down into three elements. The first is neutrality. Decision makers are unbiased. The second is transparency. The decision criteria and considerations are explained rather than hidden. The third is participation. Employees have a say. There's some research suggesting that employees want to have a say even if they don't get their way. Voice is not just about driving change. It's also about expressing your values and being heard. When employees speak up, it's up to leaders to make sure they feel heard, to explain the process for making the decision. For example, take a study at a manufacturing company that instituted a pay freeze. Employees facing financial hardship remained satisfied and committed as long as the decision was communicated with procedural justice. Neutrality meant highlighting that it was applied consistently to all employees. Transparency involved explaining that the company was under intense economic pressure and the pay freeze was chosen as an alternative to layoffs. Voice involved making it clear that managers took employees' concerns into account. You don't have to grant every request, but you do have to show that you've considered each one seriously and fairly, which is something many leaders failed to do. I think some are, are probably failing their employees in certain ways because they say they have an open-door policy and they really don't. I think there are some companies who say they have social responsibilities who provide fabulous lip service and great rhetoric, but don't. It seems like the leader's job is to listen, to make decisions based on shared values, and then say, okay, given that we've made this decision, we're going to do our damnedest to make sure it helps the company or at least doesn't hurt the company. I, I think that's, that's totally right. There are potential benefits of responding to employee activism and real costs of ignoring it. But if you're not at the top of an organization and you have an issue you want to champion, how do you use your voice effectively to drive change and avoid retaliation? More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at SAP. I feel like I had the perfect childhood. Rode to the farm with my dad a lot, hung out with my mom. We were around horses and cows, and I had, like, cats and dogs at my house. Jill Papelka grew up in central Texas. 
So when I went to college, I realized there's this whole world out there, right? I mean, there are these incredible like countries and cultures and religions and wow, how do I get an opportunity to see all these things? And so international studies, international business seemed to be the right way to go. Jill has traveled far beyond her family's farm. About five years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Asia and live in Asia for a while. And that was like the pinnacle. It was a dream come true. She was getting ready to move to Singapore. So she reached out to someone who would be helping her get settled there, Sarah Ong. She wrote me a long email telling me who she is, how she was being brought up, who she has in her family. And guess what? The next I know, she introduced me to her husband, to her mother-in-law, her sister-in-law, her brother-in-law, her mom, her children, and her little puppy. And then I was like, she's so personable. She's like me. She cares about people. And then she asked me a lot of questions about me. And I was like, she's not like a boss. She's like a pen pal who's going to finally come to Singapore. Sarah had amazing superpowers, and I saw it from the moment I showed up because she made me comfortable in a foreign country. Jill is the president of SAP Success Factors, where she focuses on human experience management. Part of her mission is to figure out what employees need to be their best selves. Often, that means seeing more potential in people than they see in themselves. Sarah did this incredible job, not just of being an executive assistant, but of creating an experience for me. I tried to encourage Sarah to take advantage of those skills more often, right? So when we had a big team meeting coming up, I said, Sarah, plan this meeting for me. She went, what? Because assistants at the time were really just for filing expenses and, and setting your calendar. And Sarah created the most amazing agenda and experience for our entire diverse Southeast Asia team. Jill and Sarah believe that opening up can ultimately lead to a more productive workplace. Sure enough, research reveals that when colleagues know more about each other's personal lives, they collaborate more responsively and more effectively. It is the human connection, something that was so challenging to be resolved over phone calls, get resolved over one minute with a cup of green tea. So apart from the team meeting itself, they get to mingle with you know, our other colleagues from other teams. And we did like a cruise dinner with the, with the whole team. And Jill, myself, and Sushan, Sushan is our COO, we were asked to sing a song. It doesn't always have to be so serious, right? I really believe in creating impactful experiences. Sarah was a temporary executive assistant when she met Jill. Now she's joined SAP full-time. I believe in people. I believe in the individuals that come to work every day and come to bring their best self. I try to see and understand in people what value they bring and then maximize and amplify what they can bring so that they have confidence in themselves to do that again and again and again because that makes us all better. And so human experience management is our solution at SAP for creating an incredible employee experience, bringing out the best in all of our employees and helping connect their passions to the company's purpose. To learn more about the human experience management solutions at SAP SuccessFactors, head to sap.com HR. It came to my knowledge that executives, they are receiving 10 weeks of paid leave when associates we're not receiving the same. How did you feel when you found that out? Oh, goodness. I was in complete shock. We are 
helping the customers. We are building your business. It made me feel more like disposable. Meet Kat Davis. I'm from Bayboro, North Carolina, deep in the South. I have two grown children, one grandbaby, and I am still employed at Walmart. Kat has been working at Walmart for 13 years. I am considered a inventory uh, manager, making sure the counts are accurate. She's done all kinds of jobs at Walmart, and she's gone up the ranks from cashier clerk to supervisor. Along the way, Kat learned of a major discrepancy between executives and store employees. Female executives who had children received 10 weeks of paid family leave at full salary. Meanwhile, full-time associates got just six to eight weeks leave at only half pay. And that wasn't much considering that many of these employees were making $10 an hour. This was definitely a nationwide issue. One of the very first stories that stick out to me was an associate. She was pregnant and she was trying to figure out how she would be able to take time off from work while paying her bills at the same time. That's a serious issue to think about being pregnant. And just so many stories began to pop up in which I knew that something had to be done. Think about a time when you've been frustrated with your organization's policies or practices. How did you raise your concerns? And what do you wish you'd done differently? In the past, you might have gone to your boss, HR, your union, or the media. Social media has opened up new channels of voice. But the first step is usually to talk to your colleagues. All I knew to do was just start talking to different individuals about issues that we were having within our store and in other stores. And it pretty much just went dead. Over time, Kat had seen how not having fully paid family leave affected her coworkers at Walmart. But many of them stayed silent about the issue. Some were afraid to speak up. Others didn't believe a huge company would ever change. But as years went by, I have had coworkers who went into my inbox asking what they could do to help. They really want to stay behind the scenes because they are afraid of retaliation. So they really don't want their names put out there. Kat was hesitant too. But as she saw more colleagues struggle, she became determined to do something about it. I guess the will to help people outweighed the notion that I may be fired. Instead of just raising your own voice, sociologists recommend organizing a movement. The task is to create a groundswell of support that gains momentum over time. And I have a colleague who specializes in that very topic. I'm Mae McDonald. I'm a professor in the management department at Wharton. May is a leading scholar of social movements in and around organizations. I think there is no industry that's safe from activism on many issues. We tend to think about social movements as progressive, as pushing for whatever the progressive conception of social responsibility might be. But one of the starkest patterns that I see in my own data is a tremendous rise in the amount of conservative-oriented corporate protesting. So about 30% of boycotts against firms today are actually conservative-leaning. You know, I started building a database tracking protests and boycotts against firms 
back in 2008 and have been building it ever since a number of protest targeting firms. Today, it's, you know, on the order of 60 times the numbers that you would see in the the early 2010s. It's obviously a dramatic change. What do you think is driving it? So many things. In part, it is frustration with the government. I think a lot of people just feel like the government won't act anymore. I think that companies are today the most powerful policymakers in this country. And so I feel like employees who have that internal position, who can see where in the firm their values may not be consistent with the policy preferences that they're advocating for, can demand that firms actually live up to the values that they're professing and they're advertising, and in that way, affect policy and create a a country that's better for everyone, not just workers. You've heard about these kinds of cases. Googlers walked out in protests over how the company dealt with sexual harassment cases. Whole Foods employees sued over being prohibited from wearing Black Lives Matter masks. But not all employee activism campaigns are effective. Remember when Wayfair employees walked out in protest of a contract with detention centers? It made headlines at the time, but didn't drive real change. Wayfair kept the contract and made a random $100,000 donation to the Red Cross. If you don't agree with something your company is doing, there are four steps May recommends to build a movement and avoid retaliation. First, you want to stand for something, not just against something. You should have direct, specific requests. It's about having a clear ask of the corporation. So a lot of times you have movements that are really angry about something, but they don't have a suggestion for what exactly they want their firms to do about it. And I actually saw this a lot recently in the wake of the Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter. And there were a lot of firms that wanted to do something and employees that were asking their firms to take action, but it wasn't clear what they could do. So having a really a clear set of demands is extremely important. Second, your request should be grounded in a common identity, a set of values that resonate with a broad audience. A clear collective identity, an identity that will appeal to everyone, even people that are not necessarily the ones affected can sympathize with. In the Google walkouts, for example, employees appealed to the company motto, don't be evil. Thousands of employees were drawn to protests by a widely shared value. This is where the Occupy Wall Street movement failed. People rallied against the 1%, but it wasn't clear exactly what they were advocating for or what they wanted. And they focused their identity on a tactic, occupying, instead of on shared values. They never had a clear, unifying, collective identity. They never made their demands clear. They had at one point a manifesto, but it had it was almost like a wiki page where anyone could chime in and add their suggestions. And so it wasn't very workable. Third, look for allies in positions of power. It really helps to have elite allies. So, you know, all the work we have on traditional social movements that targeted the government shows that it was really helpful if you had someone on the inside. And so to the extent that you might have a board member who sympathizes or a member of the C-suite, it is not a bad idea to try to talk directly to the people who you think most likely to sympathize with your uh, movement to see if you can get someone 
on the inside and the upper echelons on board early. Of course, not everyone has access to people in power. Which brings us to the fourth step. Start building a coalition. Psychologists find that signaling the support of others is one of the most effective and most underutilized strategies for influence. Merely having one colleague amplify your idea can be enough to get it heard. But sociologists take this further. They recommend forming alliances with existing groups that can help you advocate for change. You want to try to find some organization within your organization that you could use as a platform. And then once you have an organization to work through that lets you uh, kind of create a collective identity, a collective group to, to mobilize, it's not a bad idea to try to find an outside group that can help you talk to them about tactics and have them talking to management from the outside at the same time as you're pressing from inside, where you address an issue from uh, outside with a legitimate social movement organization and inside with a clear, mobilized group is a really effective strategy. This was one of the first steps Kat Davis took when she wanted to expand paid family leave benefits for store associates at Walmart. She joined United for Respect, an outside labor advocacy group. When I joined UFR, that's when I realized that there are so many people out there who believe retail workers deserve paid leave. And with their help, Kat honed in on a specific demand. Get full-time associates the same 10 weeks at full salary as executives had. So we just started doing simple things like surveys and petitions to see who were interested in the same fight. We mostly used social media, things like Facebook and uh, Instagram. And after a few months of rallying employees nationwide around a clear ask, we were able to, oh, <laughs> we were able to collect 100,000 signatures from associates and allies who believed that we deserved paid leave. Wow. Yes. You got 100,000 signatures? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Were, were you surprised? Oh, yes. I was. Yes, I'm still surprised to this day. <laughs> How many were you aiming for? Wow. Hopefully we will garner at least 500. But when it finally reached 100,000, we were like, oh, my goodness. For years, I knew that workers needed paid time off. But to have a group behind you giving you support, it makes a huge difference. There is power in numbers. And Kat made sure top executives saw that power. In 2017, her coalition presented a box with the 100,000 employee signatures to the office of Walmart's CEO. And the same weekend is when I spoke at the shareholders meeting concerning the paid um, leave policy. After months of mobilizing a collective and finding allies in other states and departments, Kat went to one of the company's biggest stages, the annual shareholders meeting, to voice the coalition's demands on two topics, electing a director with environmental expertise and expanding family leave. I was told that between the attendees and people watching, it would probably be close to 25,000 people. I have never spoken in front of a crowd that large. I make it there and 
The place is full. I mean, it is full. The meeting was at the University of Arkansas Arena. The stage was set with dozens of speakers from around the world. Music performances opened the event, followed by motivational presentations that showcased the company's achievements. Then, the lights moved to the crowd, and all eyes were on Kat. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to calm my nerves. And we are given three minutes to present our presentation. Three minutes. And right before it was time for me to present my proposal, a lady gave her proposal. She was with a union. And while she's talking, you can hear the boos and no. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I I said to myself, they are harsh. And I'm thinking, I'm next. And I think my heart just sunk even further. (laughs) The meeting was recorded, so let's roll the tape. My name is Carolyn Davis from store 1300, and I am a Walmart associate from the Outer Banks of North Carolina, where I proudly serve our customers. And as far as investing in associates, the unfair leave policies, reduced hours, and low pay make it difficult for most of us to pay our bills and to take care of our families. Walmart can and should live up to the promises it makes. Investing in associates means letting us take care of our children when they are sick and accepting our doctor notes. Investing in associates means that new parents and Walmart are allowed time to bond with our children. Walmart's female executives receive 10 weeks of paid family leave. And after the first two or three sentences, I hear, yes, yes, that's right, yes. I'm like, Oh, my goodness. And then I keep speaking and I hear people all over the room like, yes, that's yes. And I hear claps and accolades and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Let's do the same for our associates, women and men. Investing in associates means ending the open availability requirement and giving associates set schedules so we can plan our lives and be there for our families. And And I was like, yes, we have done it. People are listening. It seemed like I went from being by myself to an org by ourselves to now the outside world joining in. It was just amazing. About seven months after Kat presented the group's demands and signatures, Walmart announced they were expanding their family leave policy. All full-time hourly employees would get 10 weeks at full pay for maternity leave and six weeks for parental leave. I mean, to this day, I'm still like in disbelief it happened so fast. From June until February, So many who want to stay anonymous because they are scared of the retaliation. Old timers who have been there for a long time. They were in my inbox congratulating me, thanking me, you know. And I even had a manager from another store stop by my store and she found me and she congratulated me for being brave 
for speaking out at the shareholders meeting to make the difference. If you make it public, they cannot deny that they did not know what associates wanted. Whether you're making requests or demands, research shows that it's critical to highlight how meeting them will benefit the organization and align with shared values. Kat did this by highlighting stories from employees across the nation, showing leaders how their workers were struggling to get by and give their families the time and attention they needed, which affected Walmart's ability to attract, motivate, and retain people. But with some employee movements, it can be hard to see the big picture behind the demands. If employees are going to try to uh, mobilize and start to affect their company's behaviors, then they have to to take it seriously and understand the power that they wield and try to think beyond their own personal experience. And I guess the good news is that everyone has a voice. The bad news is everyone has a voice. Yeah. It seems like in the past, <laughs> decision-making was authority-based and it's becoming more democratic. Is that a good thing? It is a different thing, right? I mean, democracies have their weaknesses. <laughs> what kind of organizational structure would you want to see that gives employees a voice, but also recognizes the authority and expertise of people in power? What I think uh, I would like to see is that companies focus on building boards that are better listeners to employees, boards that don't only have uh, financial competencies and can can uh, read your accounting statements, those skills are really important. But so are skills for understanding social and political threats, to understand the grievances uh, within your company, to be people who employees are, are comfortable going to with grievances. I think that we all need to stop thinking about activism as a threat and instead see it as an opportunity. Activism is information. It's information about how preferences are changing. It is a signal about what issues that have been taken for granted are being problematized and are likely to be baked into market performance in the future and you know, represent those latent sources of market risk that corporate leaders need to always be trying to augur and understand. And so if you reconceptualize activism as that, then it makes sense to, to frequently ask your employees' opinions about what issues they most care about and how they think that the firm might be a better leader uh, at the forefront of that issue. I guess the rosy take on it is that it's like a marketplace for ideas, that there's competition between different issues and that the issues that resonate most with your stakeholders are the ones that get the most attention and rise to the top. I like I like the framing of this as market risk. It is. I mean, we see the market responding to issues like diversity and, you know, whether or not you sell guns and these issues that it didn't used to respond to. Social grievances, you know, that there, there's a price to them once there's enough traction behind a movement. We need employees to hold leaders accountable for doing the right thing. And we need employees to hold each other accountable for speaking up when it serves the greater good and doing so effectively. If there's one place where the Bible, Voltaire, and Spider-Man agree, it's that with great power comes great responsibility. I think it should also come with great accountability. Yes, making change in response to employee activism can seem like a risk. 
But ignoring that activism is a risk too. Next time on Work Life. I actually cried because I felt so scared and so guilty that I got it. Because I was like, wow, I somehow tricked Netflix into giving me this opportunity. Find out how to turn insecurity into motivation. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quinn, Ban Ban Chang, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Constanza Gallardo. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. Gratitude to the following researchers and their colleagues. Denise Rousseau, Jeff Thompson, and Stuart Bunderson on psychological contracts. Joel Brockner, Batia Wiesenfeld, Jason Colquitt, and John Schaubrook on procedural justice. Dean McFarlane and Paul Sweeney on having a say. Tom Bateman on proactivity. Sue Ashford and Jane Dutton on issue selling. Dave Mayer and Scott Sunshine on moral issues. Kristen Bain on amplifying ideas. Bob Cialdini on social proof. And Holly McCammon and Braden King on social movements. I'm surrounded by pillows. I'm in my home office and it's somewhat embarrassing because it looks like I've turned my desk into a bed. I have one, two, three, four, five, six pillows surrounding a, I think it's called a snowball ice microphone. Here I thought you were just listening to the My Pillow guy too much. <laughs>